0: for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Etura and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caius, the word of God came to, the, came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all the people will see God's salvation. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: Thanks be to God. You can be seated. How about a round of applause for Zoe saying all those names? Well, friends, so great to be together. Um, you know, a really great thing has happened in our church this year. Um, a lot of new people have come to our church in the last year, and that means that a lot of people feel like the new person in our church. And one thing that we would love not to happen is as folks come up, come in, and they don't know anybody to, to assume that, like, uh, to have nobody talk to them. That's a really sad thing to go into a room full of people and no one acknowledge your presence. It's a really sad thing. So, Early in the life of our church, we decided as long as we could possibly avoid it, we wanted to avoid having a formal hospitality team, because we didn't want to say like, okay, four people in our church are responsible for being hospitable, and the rest of us can be as rude as we want to be. (laughs) And so if you call Cornerstone your home church, whether you're pretty new or whether you've been around for a bit, would you just, would you take responsibility for uh, introducing yourself to people? And especially if you see people who are sitting alone or appear not to know anyone, would you invite them to come and sit with you? And even after service, uh, make a point of if you know one other person, trying to introduce them to that one other person. It really makes absolutely all the difference in the world. So it's as simple as just saying, hi, my name is. And when they tell you, like it often happens to me, we've met like five times, you just say, I'm so sorry, help me with your name again, and, and, and just try to, try to remember, try to introduce them, but be gracious too, When like me, you botch it almost constantly. Uh, but I am I'm grateful that we get to be together. This is a fun season of the year. I hope that you're coming here today, and you're with people that you love. I hope that you're coming here today and you feel like you are at home with this community, or maybe you come and you're among strangers, you're feeling a bit apprehensive about it. I hope that you're coming feeling just generally light and encouraged in life, or maybe you're, you're bringing baggage with you of some wounds or some hurts, or maybe even the holidays are stirring up some feelings that you'd rather avoid. I don't know if you believe the things that we believe, or maybe you totally disagree with us and think differently. I just want to say that nobody is here by mistake. And the Holy Spirit's been at work drawing you in toward the Lord Jesus, drawing you in toward community, and so I want to say to each and every one of you in the name of Jesus, you're welcome and you're wanted. I'm glad that you're here. Ready to get in scriptures? Okay. Okay. That was mildly optimistic. Let's try again. Yeah. We're doing it either way. Well, uh, this weekend I was with the, my extended Odom family in Oracle, Arizona, and you say, Where is Oracle, Arizona? Well, I'll tell you. It's next to Winkleman. Does that help you? (laughs) It's near Dudleyville, okay? Uh, My my grandfather, my last living uh, grandparent, passed a few weeks ago. And so our family, all of the Odoms, gathered in uh, Oracle area to honor and celebrate his life. And it was just a delight. Uh, His name is Charles Wesley Odom and uh, raised strong Assembly of God Christian, but he was was named after Charles Wesley. He and his brother John were a part of the beginning of the the Methodist movement, but they were Anglicans, and so I didn't even know that I had that in my heritage. But uh, Granddad Charlie passed, and it was such a great gift to get to celebrate his life. Oracle is about uh, two hours southeast of the Phoenix area, and so we landed in Sky Harbor, the friendliest airport in America, and got our rental car and drove uh, two hours southeast to make it to Oracle. But to get to his funeral was in San Manuel, which was uh, a little bit further east. And uh, this weekend, we, we woke up at Granddad's house, and we got on our church clothes, and we loaded up in the car, and we started driving out to uh, San Manuel Assembly of God Church for his service. And I was struck. It had been a while since I'd been in Arizona, we went there tons as kids, and I remember riding four-wheelers through the desert. And, uh, but it, it struck me, driving to San Manuel, the, the arid climate and the rolling hills and the mountains in the distance, how much all of it reminded me of the Judean wilderness. And a handful of years ago, I know it was eight years ago, or actually nine years ago, because our son Sam was in Emily's tummy, and we packed an extra suitcase just for food for Emily on that trip to Israel. Uh, we, we got to go from Jerusalem out in the Judean wilderness. We went jeeping through the Judean wilderness, and we had tea with some Bedouins, and and we, we got to see this, this area that's generically described in the New Testament as uh, the wilderness. And if you can picture uh, in the, the city of Jerusalem, I hope that you have a chance to go to Israel at some point, but uh, there's, there's the Temple Mount in the middle of Jerusalem, and to the east there's the Mount of Olives, where Jesus had prayed with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as you go over the Mount of Olives, you come to Bethany, where Mary and Martha lived. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. But as you keep going further east, you're making your way toward the Jordan River, toward Jericho. And there's a treacherous 100 miles between Jerusalem and Jericho. It's a trip that is so treacherous, so dangerous, you don't go that direction if you don't. Have to because if you were, were injured or, or attacked uh, and you were left as dead, you were, were good as dead. And when Jesus told the parable of the good Samaritan, he's probably thinking about you know coming across a, a sharp turn in the road on the way down to the Jordan River Valley and bandits being there and leaving uh, this this person wounded and left for dead. And the places you go further on, I'll show you a picture in just a minute. The, the place gets a little bit apocalyptic. You're going out, think like Area 51. You're making your way toward the Jordan River, and, and it's arid. You maybe see wild animals. As you, as you get further into the Jordan River Valley, you might come across a historic community that's no longer there, but archaeologists have discovered the, the community in Qumran. Qumran was this apocalyptic sect, um, hosted this apocalyptic sect called the, the Essenes, and the Essenes had these strict purity laws. They, they wanted to be so pure that they might entice or encourage the Messiah to return, and so they lived according to these strict ascetic guidelines. They were meticulous about studying the Scriptures. In fact, uh, many of the, the texts that we have the, were copies uh, of texts that the, the community at Qumran wrote down by hand. You may have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. These came from the Essenes at the community of Qumran. And and there's a man that comes to us in the New Testament who, if he was not part of the Essene community, was a whole lot like him. And it's the person of John the Baptist who's preaching this message of repentance out in the middle of the desert. And John features prominently in our text today, but he also features prominently in the whole Christian season of Advent, which is a season of repentance, especially focused on the second coming of Christ to renew and restore all things. And as we get into the text that Zoe read, all those, all those names were uh, markers in time. Uh, Luke, the, the evangelist, was following the practice of his day of, of dating the story that he was uh, recreating, retelling, by saying when it happened in such and such, the, the fifth year of such and such their reign rule. He's actually gone to a lot of work to try to include historical details. He's giving a, 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 an account of historical things that actually happened. So Luke dates John the Baptist's coming in where it fit with these leaders. And the text tells us that at that time the word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah. The, the pre-story, the pre-history with the nativity story are in Luke's Luke 1 And two, But here, uh, Luke puts John in the posture of one of those old-time prophets of the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came on Saul. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, to Ezekiel, to Nahum, to Habakkuk. Now the word of the Lord has come to John, son of Zechariah. And the word of the Lord comes to him in the wilderness. That stretch between Jerusalem and Jordan and throughout the whole river valley. If you know the Bible, you might think back on times and seasons where God's people were in the wilderness. Wilderness, in Israel terms, is like the desert. Uh, It's not like jungle, we're talking desert, arid. And wilderness in the Bible, on the one hand, is associated with the theme of wandering, but it's also associated with clarity. And sometimes the the noise and the pace and the distractions of city life drown out God's voice and God's perspective. So sometimes you need the seasons of the wilderness and you need to go into the wilderness to get your head on straight and to get your heart on straight. Sometimes you need to be in the wilderness to see just how backward city life can be. Uh, Dallas Willard tells the story of uh, a jet pilot who's going at just extreme speeds and doing these really dangerous maneuvers and is going at such a rapid speed and then pulls up hoping to do like a flip and land, like runs into the ground. And the pilot didn't realize that all the while they were flying upside down. I wonder how many of us are going at such a hard pace and we crash in life not realizing just how upside down the rhythms and the patterns and the habits of our life has been. Sometimes in our lives and sometimes in the life of those who we read about in Scripture, you're led into the wilderness. Uh, You might think uh, readily of the story of Israel coming out of Egypt. They've been enslaved for 400 years. God leads them to the Red Sea. They receive the law at Mount Sinai, and then for a generation For 40 years, they wander around the wilderness en route to the promised land. And the wilderness was for them a time of purging. Purging of idols and purging of habits of the heart that weren't going to work in the promised land. I think for me about a a challenging season in my life with God, early when we were planting the church, now just probably about four years ago, where I was talking to a spiritual director and I related to him, I felt like none of the stuff that I was doing in my life with God worked anymore. Have you ever been in a spot like that? Where you're praying and it's just hitting the ceiling or you're reading scripture and you're unmotivated. And it, like On the, the one day where you are motivated, you read a text from, from Le- Leviticus or Hosea or something and it just doesn't make any sense and you leave uninspired. And I was in one of these seasons where I was exerting so much. We had Gideon who was young, the church was young, and nothing that I felt like I was doing in my life with God was working anymore. And my spiritual director wisely said to me, he said, well, that makes total sense. You're in completely different terrain than you've ever been in in life. He said, if you can imagine hiking through the mountains in winter, you pack in a certain way, you dress in a certain way, you practice certain survival skills, but if you leave that climate and you go into the middle of the desert, you dress differently, you pack differently, you need to use a different set of skills to make it. God bless that kid who's trying to survive back there. If any of you feel like you've happened upon a dry season or a wilderness season in your life with God, it could well be, well, I know that it's not that God has abandoned you, but it could be that God is transitioning you. Out of a time, a season that where you're accustomed to these false comforts or alternate sources of security, it could be that in this wilderness season that God wants to give you a refreshed perspective. Sometimes we're led into the wilderness. But sometimes by our own accord, we actively seek the wilderness. I think about some of the historic practices of the church, like fasting and silence and solitude, practices that are so critical in our noisy world. These are elective wilderness experiences. It's like snuffing out the city lights in our hearts so that we can more readily see the stars. The Gospels tell us that whatever is happening with John the Baptist was, was so compelling that people actively sought him in the wilderness. Now, envisioning John's context as I've described it, we're a hundred miles east of Jerusalem through the rolling hills. He's got his back to the Jordan River where he would baptize many people. Then we, we, we envision his context, what he's seeing in front of him, and then hear the words of his message afresh. John says a voice of one calling in the wilderness, quoting Isaiah 40. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. The rough ways smooth and all people will see God's salvation. John's got this great vista in front of him of, of exactly what he's describing. He is envisioning, let's make the way easy for the Messiah to come to Jerusalem. The expectation is that the Messiah would return through the east gate. He would come from the east. He would ascend, go past Bethany, go up the Mount of Olives, and there he would enter and come into the temple through the east gate. John's saying, let's prepare the way for the Lord who's coming. The imagery of this road from the wilderness where John was preaching to Jerusalem, the place where the Messiah was expected to come, was treacherous. And so John is using this vision of a physical change in the land, straightening the path to animate their imagination about his call to repentance. The, the vision of filling valleys and leveling mountains and straightening the path was a vision of humbling oneself of removing obstacles of sin, and in particular, is, uh, the verses beyond verse 6 show us, uh, doing the work of justice. So he says to those who are wealthy, and he defined wealth here by those who have two shirts, give the other one away. It's a principle that you who have excess share with those who don't have enough. He says to the tax collectors who came out, by the way, uh, Aaron Dyken and others have been compelling me to watch *The Chosen*, and I will be very candid: I am not a person who's crazy about religious programming. Does that, is that okay to say? I, I don't I don't get very excited about Christian movies. I did watch the first episode. It's really good. It's really good, and uh, I thought about Matthew, the tax collector. He says, uh, John says to the tax collectors, don't don't take more from people than is due. He says to those who are Roman centurions, already the the message of the Messiah was attracting a Gentile audience. He says, don't falsely accuse people. Don't extort money. Preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah by doing the work of justice. Ben Kilgore tells a story about a time when he was employed at this church and someone made uh, some poor decisions And a lot of people had to be let go. And um, it was a really unfortunate situation. And they're in this staff meeting where they're being told that tons of people are going to be let go. And how Ben Kilgore is this? Ben stands up on a table and he goes, this is wrong! And nobody's doing anything about it! (laughs) Who does that? (laughs) Ben Kilgore. He's just felt... People are not being honest about what's really going going on. This is an injustice. This is wrong. And we need to name it as such. He was doing this, and I'm going to compliment Ben, in the spirit of John the Baptist. (laughs) And there are things out there, I could say, beyond the the life of the local church or the church, there are things in our world that are wrong, injustices that need to be righted. There, There are places where the church needs to use our prophetic voice. But there are also injustices within our own families. And there are wrongs and abuses that have been uh, exposed within the church and within evangelicalism. The spirit of John, John the Baptist still says this is wrong, calls us to repentance. Now, John the Baptist is a preposterous figure to be talking about in the weeks leading to Christmas, it feels like. Especially if you think of Christmas as being or Advent as being merry and bright, leading to the celebration of you know nine pound eight ounce baby Jesus sitting there in the manger. John the Baptist is a preposterous figure to be talking about. He he doesn't fit in. He's wearing clothes made of camel's hair. Have you seen camels? He's eating bugs and honey. He's shouting, uh, "Repent!" I promise you that no one in this church has a John the Baptist ornament on their Christmas tree you should, though, that'd be a great one. John is not being invited to Christmas parties. John stands in juxtaposition to the excesses of the season of Christmas in American culture. And yet the, the story of the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, uh, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all begin with the ministry of Jesus. If you, if you look at Matthew and Luke, the two stories that have a birth narrative, if you consider, consider the birth narrative as like the prehistory, uh, the story really starts in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, with the coming of John the Baptist. And it's very deliberate. If you were at Matthew uh, chapter 1, page 1 of the New Testament, and turned back one page to the final verses in the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi would be telling us that we should be expecting someone like John. John, uh, this, this is what it says in Malachi 4. The very ominous ending to the Old Testament. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He'll turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. There was a messianic expectation that ahead of the coming of the Christ, one in the spirit and power of Elijah would come preaching a message of repentance and calling people toward justice. And this is precisely what John did. In Matthew chapter one, uh, Matthew chapter three it says, In those days John the Baptist was preaching, Mark, the, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. John appeared in the wilderness. And then again we have it here in Luke three. When you know that the new Elijah, John the Baptist, shows up, it's the beginning of the end of the world and the beginning of a new season altogether. And repentance and justice and holiness called for by John were intended to uh, precede the advent of Christ the Messiah, Christ the King. And as we think back to great periods of spiritual awakening throughout Christian history, uh, repentance and justice and holiness have preceded times of spiritual refreshing. Last week, as we introduced uh, the theme of Advent, if you weren't here, it's it's more closely linked to the second coming of Christ than the marketers at, at Aldi who make your cheese calendar uh, have led you to believe. <laughs> It's not, not primarily the countdown to Christmas, but a season of repentance looking for the second coming of Christ to renew and restore all things. Talked about how the original Advent candles were not light, hope, joy, and peace, but something like judgment, death, heaven, and hell. There's an apocalyptic air about them, and in, in, in the text assigned to us last week, we talked about Jesus' call in Luke 21 to read the times and to be watchful, and I I urged uh, our church, and, and, and if you didn't start last week, start now, as a communal practice in the spirit of, of of reading the times and being watchful through Advent to begin and end your day kneeling and praying the Lord's Prayer, which we'll do together in just a minute. So last week, reading the times, and being watchful, but but today the text assigned to us in Luke says that in, in view of Christ's return, we're to seek the message that's from the wilderness, which is to Gain clarity and repent. To gain clarity and repent. Using that image of John with his back to the Jordan and the wilderness before him, I was thinking differently about the line from the Christmas carol, Let every heart prepare him room. Make straight the paths, fill the valleys, level the hills. In in that spirit of, of seeking clarity and repentance, I might Ask you a handful of questions for you to do some self reflection. And it's okay if it feels a little bit juxtaposed to the season of, of, of Christmas the season of repentance, the season of Advent is calling us to repentance. I wonder if you might consider in what areas of your life might you be tolerating injustice? Or quite simply withholding good from those to whom it's due? So think about the lonely neighbor that you've had an impulse to be hospitable toward them and you've not. Think about the person who's on the street corner that you pass every single day and you never acknowledge them at the least or give them something. In what way might you be tolerating injustice or withholding good? In what ways might you be allowing some form of exploitation, whether it's In your work, or whether it's in, uh, you might even investigate some of the goods that you consume. In what ways might you be allowing exploitation? Ask yourself this too. Examine, are there things that God has said are outside of His best for you that you need empowered by the Holy Spirit to boldly cut off and say no to? For those of you who own businesses or oversee other people, Are you dealing honestly in all of your business practices? If uh, if other people were to examine what you're doing, could you explain your, your business choices with a clean conscience? Are you treating those who you employ with courtesy and honor and respect? I think about the, the, that line from Malachi chapter 4 about how Elijah, the new Elijah, John the Baptist, would call the hearts of parents back to their children and the hearts of children back to their parents. I wonder for those in our church who are parents, whether you've been on autopilot with your children. They, or, or perhaps regarded them as inconveniences to everything else that you're trying to do in life. In my, in this season of Advent, the Lord be gearing your heart back to them, not only to lavish them with with gifts on Christmas, but to be attentive to your children, these little people made in God's image. All of us are children of somebody. I wonder, for all of us, how we might be invited to consider our relationship with our parents, whether you're a teenager or a college student in the room. In what ways, as far as it depends on you, might you be invited to honor your parents, and to seek peace with your parents. For those of you who are living uh, under your parents' roof, that you might obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right according to the Ten Commandments. In what, ways, what way might you be invited to honor your parents, honor your children? I might ask each of us this question that I think is especially pertinent. Have you created habits in the things that you listen to or the things that you watch that drown out the voice of God. It doesn't mean that they're overtly uh, spiritually toxic or negative or promiscuous or anything like that. It could be that it's just, it's just constant noise. You're unaccustomed to silence. You, you've created no space in which actual reflection can happen. Can you, drown, can you turn off some of the city lights in your heart so that you can see the stars? I wonder, for those who feel like they're in a a dry season in their life with God, are are you in a wilderness season, but you haven't asked the Lord, what are you doing with me that I, I ought to pay attention to? If there's clarity to be gained in the wilderness, Lord, what are you trying to do? You've been petitioning Him to bring you to an oasis, but maybe you're not ready for it. Maybe there's, some, there's a false sense of security that needs to be starved out If you. Ask the Lord if you're in a dry season, if He's actually doing something in you. Still others of us might need to consider, do we need to seek the wilderness? Maybe it's through silence or solitude. Do we need to actively seek the wilderness? One of the disheartening lessons of the wilderness for the people of Israel can you remember everything that they had just gone through? They'd, they'd been delivered from captivity. They'd walked through the sea on dry ground. They saw the smoke and the fire in the mountain. God gave them his law. His presence filled the tabernacle. And when they were led away by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, they still complained the whole way. They still fashioned the golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai, and one of the the sources of clarity that came from the wilderness experience of Israel was that they were going to be incapable of keeping the covenant that God gave them. And as he warned through Moses, if they didn't keep the covenant, they would lose the land. We could have foreseen that the exile was going to happen, that the land that was promised to them would be stripped of them. The, The lesson of clarity in the wilderness for Israel was that they were incapable of obedience. And in a similar way, we learn our own story that we are incapable of obedience to this call to repentance apart from empowerment to the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. Unless something in the whole paradigm changes, we too are dead in our sin, incapable of fulfilling the law. But the message of John to repent is a message that precedes the greater message of good news that the kingdom of God is at hand in the person of Jesus Christ. In the message to repent, and the season of repentance is still, in in view of the message, in light of the message, still a season of hope. Because the same Jesus who came and was born in Bethlehem will come again to restore and to renew all things, to judge the living and the dead, and to put all things to rights. Therefore, even along with the call to repentance and the self-examination, we still say with a songwriter, rejoice Rejoice! Emmanuel will come to us, Israel. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it feels it feels a bit strange in the time of year where you know more people return to church, where we we wear our Sunday best. We're getting ready to give gifts to people, and celebrate that we would hear John the Baptist's voice ringing, this is wrong, (laughs) repent. And yet, Lord, we know from our own life experience how self-deceived we can be, how short-sighted we can be, how slow to listen we can be, and so no wonder we need these voices of clarity from the wilderness calling us to see the world the way that you see it. So forgive us, Lord Jesus, in very practical terms of living in upside-down ways. Of having such stubborn hearts that we refuse generosity to those to whom we could easily give. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, from separating the stuff we do in this building on a Sunday morning from the way that we treat our employees Monday through Friday. Or the way that we treat our parents or the way that we treat our children. And Lord, we pray with the the Christmas carol that every heart would prepare you room, that you'd enable us to do this work of simple justice and and, uh, relational justice by examining uh, our most important relationships, relationship with children and parents, relationships with other believers, relationships with strangers and even enemies. Help us to read the times, Lord. Help us to be watchful. Help us to live in this perennial posture of repentance, uh, eager at all times to receive you as you would come to us, Lord Jesus. And now, Lord Jesus, as you come to meet us at the table, would you pour out your Spirit on us and on this bread and wine and make it be for us so much more than just that, but a means by which we experience through the Holy Spirit the presence of Christ our King. And so we pray, be present. Be present, to Jesus, our great high priest, as you're present with your disciples in the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine. Transform us into your image. Help us to feast on your life, and may we be like you in this world. This we pray in Christ's name and his glory. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone.